Nothing knows. Nothing knows. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Nothing Owed podcast. You're here with uh, Brian Hanna and Stu Scheller. And today we have a really great guest, um, Dean Wegner from Authentically American. Uh, he's the founder and CEO of that company. Um, he has a great story. Authentically American is a great company. Uh, Manager, you're going to find out they uh, specialize in manufacturing their clothing in the United States, which I think is a huge deal. Um, I think it's uh, very important to talk about. I think it's very important to promote American manufacturing. Um, and also Dean has offered a lot of his time to veterans in the past. So he's uh, a great guest, a great person, um, and we're excited to talk to him. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Dean so he can introduce himself and we'll get started. So Dean, how are you doing today? Brian, Stu, I'm doing fantastic. It's an honor to be a guest here. So thank you for inviting me. Well, of course, we, we'd love to have you. They have a great story. So we want to make sure people hear about it. So can you, um, I know you served in the military and I know you had um, some family that served in the military. So if you'd like, um, I know you had told me before that you had some family that served in the, in the Chosen Reservoir. Um, I know you had other family yes. that served in other branches. Um, I, I'd really like to hear that story. If you could tell us about your family and, and kind of what drove yeah. you to uh, enlist in the military. Well, I'll start just with a brief introduction. And Brian, I always like to start with what's most important to me yeah, please. in life. And we're carving out time here on a Sunday, which works out fantastic. But, you know, before the podcast, you know, my family. Emily and I were at church, and that's where it starts with me, my Christian faith. And then family is incredibly important to me. So my wife and I just last month celebrated 26 years, and it's been an incredible journey. We have four kids, two daughters, 22 and 19. We have a 16-year-old son. We have a 10-year-old son we adopted from Ethiopia. Wow. So family is equally important as well. And, you know, fitness and health and maintaining an active, healthy lifestyle is important. So later this afternoon, I'm going to go get it and run. And my only challenge now with leading a startup is, you know, those runs, those workouts aren't as long as I'd <laughs> ideally like them to be. Yeah, I, I can imagine. But congratulations on your, on your marriage and the family. That, that's, that's great. Well, I appreciate it, Brian. And to the question about my connection to the Marine Corps, and I shared with you, I've got a special affinity for the Marine Corps. So love that I'm on the line here with you and Stu this morning. So that affinity really is twofold. So I've mentioned my bride of 26 years, her father-in-law, he has since passed. And I've learned once a Marine, always a Marine, but he was served in the Korean War, was a member of the Frozen Chosen. And he doesn't like to talk about a lot. He did not like to talk about it, but you know, I just had the utmost respect and appreciation. And you know, we're a very intentional and authentically American. We want to honor our American heroes. And we do that. Stu by very intentionally donating 10% of our profits to veteran and first responder charities. And one of them is my father-in-law, Terry Quinn, who was a Marine Corps infantry man who served in the Korean War. So that's one. The other one, you know, Stu connecting to you and the Marine Corps infantry. So after (laughs) flight school, you know, I went to Ranger School and I had no reason going to flight, going to Ranger School. Here I'm an aviator. And that's one end of the Army. And then the complete opposite is the Special Forces Rangers. And I won a competition at flight school, had an opportunity to go. And it was miserable. (laughs) It was absolutely awful. But one of the things that helped get me through was my Ranger buddy. My Ranger buddy was Sergeant Roy Backey, a Marine Corps Infantry Sergeant. And when I needed a big swift kick and you know where, he's the one that gave it to me. That's great. 
was that was your choice was that a um did you ever expect you go to ranger school i know you you're an aviator but is that something that ever crossed your mind when you started because that that's a pretty uh drastic change it was brian and it goes back to your senior year at west point your first year okay and i did not not realize this and i don't think most people are not connected with the military know this but you know one of the things you do your senior year is you choose your branch and there are over 18 different choices and i had no idea there were that many i mean there's infantry which is the heart and soul of the army there's armor driving tanks field artillery there's all these combat arms but then there's combat support and combat service support whether it's military police or transportation or finance i mean there's a long list of options and i'd really Brian boiled it down to two. You know, one, I thought I was going to go the route of the infantry. Mm-hmm. Or you remember that movie Top Gun? Yeah, yeah. That was the movie that said, maybe that's the lifestyle I want to <laughs> live and be an aviator. And ultimately went the aviation route, went to flight school. But there was still part of me, Brian, that was torn, thinking, did I really make the right choice? And at flight school, they made an announcement. They said, guys, once in a lifetime opportunity, we're going to have a competition and send one of you to ranger school and i was very fortunate won that competition and you know this is part of the entrepreneurial spirit showing up very early because most people said you're crazy (laughs) you're in the aviation arena why in the world would you ever want to do that but i look back now with just the most fondest memories because i joke it was miserable and it was awful but brian we started with 340 of us on day one you know, 72 days later, after one meal a day and two to three hours sleep a night, you know, there were only 72 of us on graduation wow. day. Wow. So now, correct, for people that don't know, and correct me if I'm wrong, graduating ranger school only means you have a, a ranger tab, correct? So if you That's were, correct. you still need to go to additional schools to actually be assigned to a ranger battalion. Is that the way that it would work? That is very true. So okay. that ranger school and you know, I was very fortunate, very blessed to go straight through. You know, if you recycle one of the four phases, you go for another two weeks of training and then you go through another two weeks. So, you know, that's the first step. And for me, being part of an aviation unit, I went back to my first aviation unit. But most of the folks there went to their infantry unit or some of them went to a ranger battalion. Oh, wow. And what, what was the cause of most of the people um, failing? Was it um just physical or was it mental? And well, why do you think most people gave up on that? Or I shouldn't say gave up, but why do you think most people didn't graduate? It was a mix of all of them you mentioned, Brian, because think about it. You know, it's a military school. So there's a lot of military doctrine and tactics, but right. at its core, it's a leadership school. Okay. And what they do is they deprive you of everything you think you need to survive, namely food and sleep. So I mentioned, you know, literally one meal a day. Right. You know, two to three hours of sleep and oftentimes there were zero hours of sleep so you couple that and then put incredible stress i mean there were times where people just said uncle i mean i can't do this and i have no interest in can you do that so there are some people that just quit and said i can't do it anymore there are other people's you're evaluated every single phase and if you don't get a pass on your exercise then you are a no-go you recycled and some people said i can't do this right if i can't pass it go straight through that I'm quitting. And some people, you know, very early on that first phase, it's very rigorous. It's very physical. So, you know, you would have, you know, group runs and it's not a slow pace. It's a very fast pace. They would follow the run and then you're kicked out as well. So there was no one specific reason, but all of them, Brian, it was just an incredible stress 
And I always joke now that I didn't know it back then, but ranger school was such great training for leading a startup because back then a ranger school was no sleep, incredible stress. <laughs> that's the life I'm living now. Yeah, that, that's a common theme. So I definitely want to get into that when we talk about uh, the business. But after you graduated uh, ranger school, you went back, you said you were, uh, you were assigned to your aviation unit. What uh, can tell us a little bit about that? What did you, what aircraft did you fly? What were you deployed anywhere? So I was never deployed. Okay. So I graduated West Point in 1993. And you think back historically, right. the first Gulf War was my junior year at West Point. So we literally watched it on the day room. And it was an incredible you know, victory for the United States and the Allied forces. And then you think from 93 to 2000, those were the seven years I served. So it was a relative period of calm. So I was never deployed, never put in harm's way, was fully t- trained and prepared and ready to go. But I got out in 2000 after my seven-year commitment and 9-11 and the chaotic world we live in right now has been after I got out. Yeah. Um, at West Point, I know I kind of glossed over, but West Point is, is a big deal. How did you, um, how would they get started on that process? I know it's not something you can just apply for. So what would you have to do to, to go down that path if someone shows? So the number one recommendation, Brian, I make is to start early. Okay. Because most college applications, it's, you know, strictly that there's an application and there's a number of processes associated with that. But to your point, going to any one of the service academies, whether it's West Point, Naval Academy, Air Force Academy, any one of them, there's going to be more steps. So one of the big ones is there's a congressional nomination. So they start very early on. So, you know, you can go online and can search and find all the details there, but, you know, it's a more rigorous process there. And the other one is a lot of the best academic institutions in the country, you know, that is their primary focus is academic. So if you have an interest in going to one of the service academies, they want you to have, you know, straight A's. They love straight A students. They love those high SAT and ACT scores, but they want much more. Right. You know, they want leaders. They want leaders on athletic teams. They want leaders in student government. They want leaders in the community. So they really try and holistically take a look and see, okay, you know, tied to West Point's mission, you know, developing leaders to serve the common defense. How do we find young men and women that are going to be ready to serve our country? That's interesting. So it's, I mean, academics are important, but also the leadership. That's, I think that's a good point. So just really anyone that's interested putting yourself out there, serving, putting your, doing your best to, to serve the people around you, I think would be a way to get noticed, correct? You got it, Brian. And I will tell you, you know, people that knew me back then, it was a small miracle I got in <laughs> and an even bigger one. I graduated because I was not the best student, was not as focused. So I would just encourage anyone, even if you don't think, you know, there's an opportunity, you may not have the best grades. I mean, go through it because what, West Point now has is a preparatory school. And there's some you know, prior service enlisted that come and able to spend that year and get ready for West Point. There's others that may not have had the best grades. So there's a lot of different opportunities and it was not easy. I mean, it was an incredibly challenging four years, but I will tell you, I look back with the fondest memories of West Point and the men and women that I you know, started to serve with there, the education and the values that I was taught. So it was just an incredible experience for me. No, it sounds like hey, it. Dean, what's the uh, service obligation on the backside of West Point? Is that five years? So, Stu, great question. The base obligation is five years. I mean, my parents loved it because they spent zero. It wasn't yeah. a single dollar. 
Ed Dispense, you get a fully funded edu education, but what you do have is service. So that's good and bad because the day you graduate, you know your job. You're going to be a second lieutenant in the Army. And for me, Stu, it was an extra two years because they spend a tremendous amount of money on flight school. There was a total of seven, an extra two years. And what's the degree you get out of West Point? Does it vary? But I know the Naval Academy, it's usually an engineer-focused type degree. Is it is it one size fits all or can you specialize? You know, it's a great question, Stu, and that has evolved over time because, you know, 20, 30 years before I graduated in 93, you know, everybody had an engineering degree and it's continued to broaden. And I know when I was there, my specific major was engineering management. I was able to have just enough course requirements to meet the engineering requirements, but then also had some management and business classes. But I've heard now, not only can you get a BS, but I've heard that you can also get a Bachelor of Arts. So they've really diversified somewhat and said, okay, we just don't need one mold, one education to serve the common defense, to serve the Army. So they've broadened that a little bit and provide a more diverse education. And then can you still use the GI Bill following a West Point graduation service, five years obligation, you get out? Could you use the GI Bill or is it off the table? No, I believe you absolutely can. And I've had, you know, friends of mine that have gone to grad school. I went and got my MBA. I've got others that have pursued different degrees. But, I mean, that is such an incredible benefit for anyone that served post 9-11 to be able to capture that GI Bill. Yeah, that's a great benefit. Uh, it's, I know a lot of people have taken advantage of it. They got multiple degrees just with their GI Bill. So that's, anyone that's out there that's listening that's unfamiliar with it, do some research because it's a great benefit to uh, – to serving. Uh, yeah. So to your point, Brian, it. you go to the VA website. It's, you know, I checked it out to see if I qualified because with my kids going to college due to your, to your point, I think not only can you use it, but post 9-11, your, your kids can use it. And unfortunately I missed out. But when I read about it, I'm like, wow, what an incredible benefit our government's providing. So I would encourage everybody to make sure that you're taking full advantage of it. Oh, that's awesome. Well, so we'll skip back to, um, when you left the, the army about 2000, what was your plan when you left the army? Did you have anything in mind? Did you have a direction you wanted to go? How did you deal with the transition out of the military into the, you know, public sector? Well, for me, Brian, I was really wrestling. You know, do I want to make it a career or do I want to transition? And, you know, back to the reference about not being the best student yeah. at West Point, I decided I was going to go to school at night and get my MBA. Okay. And unlike my undergrad, I really enjoyed it and found out that I had an interest for it and had an aptitude. So me going to school at night, getting my MBA reinforced that although I love serving my country, love the camaraderie of Esprit de Corps, it was time for me to transition when my commitment was up. And then it was really a question of, okay, what job, what path are we gonna go down? And the MBA helped me educate from a business standpoint, but I went with a JMO, a junior military officer recruiting firm Okay. And Captain Brooks was the one that I went with. They're a phenomenal firm. There are others that are out there, but they really helped open my eyes to the broad range of opportunities that were out there. And the very first job for me, Brian, was a former big five consulting firm, KPMG. Okay. It was phenomenal experience, worked with incredible clients, loved that work, but loved my family more. And I never saw them. One thing I didn't realize that the life of a consultant, it was Monday through Friday. And I should have been a lot smarter, Brian, because when they said, well, Dean, where do you want to live? I'm like, well, well where do you want me to live? Don't I have to be in either work? And like, just live near an airport. That would be our recommendation. And for two years, 
literally it was Monday through Friday every weekend. You know, it worked for the short term, but as we started having our second child and plan for more kids, it just wasn't going to work long term. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. The if you don't mind, I kind of like to dig into the the consultant position a little bit because I, I think a lot of people hear that term and they they they've heard the the company KPMG, but like what exactly did you do? You know, as a consultant, like you traveled to different various companies, but when you got to that company, what were your responsibilities there? So KPMG. You know, when I was there, and I'm not as familiar with them today, but they were one of the best, what they referred to as a systems integrator. Okay. So, for example, there was an HR management system called PeopleSoft. So, I had a very incredibly bright, talented team from a coding and software standpoint that were in charge of implementing this system at SBC Wireless, so a big telecom company. So my job was twofold. One, Brian, was to manage the project, make sure it was on time and on budget, and then also, you know, build a great relationship with SBC. So the next time they needed another project, they didn't go to Deloitte and Touche, they didn't go to PricewaterhouseCoopers, they would go to KPMG. Okay. And what I learned is that, you know, I love the client relationship side, love the that piece of it, but didn't love the technologies that much. Okay. So, you know, after two years deciding it was time to transition. One, it was because of the travel, but I also wanted to find something different. So I ended up joining Procter & Gamble, okay. which is an incredible company, had world-class iconic brands like Crest and Tide and Pampers. And I went from more of a project manager, systems technology side to the business development side. And that's where I you know, was able to start to build those relationships and work with some of our you know, biggest customers. Your biggest customers today? Is that what you're talking no, about? I'm sorry. This was back at Procter & Gamble. Okay. So think of customers like Walmart. Okay. Think of gotcha. customers like Target or Kroger. So all of those big retailers that, you know, consumer packaged goods companies work with. Okay. So th- those were some of the customers that I worked with. Very nice. And it sounds like you probably had more time with the family. <laughs> Hopefully. I still put in some long days, you know, wake up early every day and put in some long days. But I always make sure, Brian, you know, one of the things I believe in is balance and priority and making sure that you're not forgetting what's most important. So it's rare that I ever miss dinner. It's rare that I ever miss one of the kids sporting events. So there were still long hours, but at least I was coming home every night. It wasn't living in Denver and then traveling to Dallas or traveling to Atlanta. So that made a big, big difference. I I totally agree. and the same boat. I, time goes by way too fast, and it's easy to take that job where you. It sounds glamorous; you make a lot of money, but at the same time, you're also sacrificing your family and time with kids and stuff, and you'll you'll never get that back. And no matter how much you get paid, no matter how much you make, it's sometimes it's not worth it to to sacrifice that. So I'm in total agreement with you there. <laughs> you're absolutely right, Brian. Because I still can't believe my oldest daughter is now 22, just graduated from college. I mean, I still remember when. You know, I'd hold her in my arms and just a small yeah. little daddy's baby little girl. Here she is all grown up. And, you know, if you are too focused on career, too focused on making money, it will all pass you by, pass it by. And then you've got nobody there to celebrate it with. Yep. I'm with you on that. So that so moving on from that, where was where's your next step? Where's your next position? So I went from Procter and Gamble, you know, to Mars. And right. instead of working on brands like Crest and Tide was working on brands like M&Ms and Snickers and Pedigree Dog Food. So two world-class marketing and branding companies. And that was so important because, you know, authentically American, Yes, you know, we're a brand. Right. And that's where a lot of my 
my you know education and training and understanding came from you know that time spent there. And it's interesting. We didn't talk this earlier, but one of the reasons also I got out of the army was mm-hmm. to stop moving. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to plant roots, wanted to invest in the community, and stop moving. And I moved even more after the army. To give you an idea, Procter yeah. and Gamble in six years, you know, lived in four different cities. And they were like, Dean, you're doing a phenomenal job. You're working well. And, you know, there's an opportunity to be promoted and move to this city. Do you want it? And my wife and I talked and prayed about it. And we thought, you know what? The kids are young. And home is not tied to a zip code. It's as long as we're all together. So, you know, we moved quite a bit, even more after the Army. And when we arrived in Nashville in 2010, it was move number 10. Oh, wow. And my wife grew up in Tennessee. She grew up in Jackson, went to the University of Tennessee. And if you haven't been to Nashville and Music City, it's just an incredible place to raise a family. It's an incredible city. And I knew that if move number 11, Brian, was coming, I was going by myself. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody was going with me. So that really led to a decision point because I was working for Mars, okay. a phenomenal company. But they were going to plan to move me at some some point. They were going to say, Dean, you know, we're making a big vest, big investment in you. Time to run this business unit, run this country, be somewhere outside of Nashville. And I'd tell them no. And I couldn't get away with that more than once. Right. So it sounds like about this point you started, or when did you start thinking about um, the entrepreneurial path? You know, when did you start coming up with the idea for Authentically American? Probably about this time? Yeah, it was about six months into Nashville because, you know, we wanted to stay here, but Mars had plans for us to move. And, you know, my wife and I had always talked and prayed about owning our own business, being an entrepreneur. Okay. But when you're moving every year or two, it's tough to do. Right. And we thought, we now know Nashville is where we want to call home. And I spent a year and a half searching, but in 2012, bought my first business. Okay. And it was a great company and an 18-year-old company that had a niche producing dress uniforms for the military. Okay. So the Marine Corps trousers, the Navy Broadfall trousers, the old Army ASU trouser that I used to wear, those were our contracts. Okay. So we would literally produce thousands of trousers every week. And a big part of me loved that because that was a way for me to get indirectly connected back to the military. And Brian, I read led and ran and owned that company for five years. And one of the things I'm most passionate about is job creation. Right. And the goal was thinking, okay, you know, how do we win more contracts? And as we're going through this process, I had an epiphany and I thought, wait a second. One of the things I'm most passionate about job creation, when we win another contract, we don't really create jobs. We just outbid another supplier because the military is not, you know, dramatically growing So that's really when this vision for Authentically American, you know, started to build. Because to give you one historical context, when I graduated from West Point in 1993, over 50% of the apparel in the U.S. was made in the U.S. Today, today it's less than three. I mean, that is all that's made here. And this is where this whole vision started to come together. I thought to myself, what if? Instead of being in the contract business, you know what? We're in the brand business. What if instead of like what 97% of companies do, produce overseas, chasing low labor, what if we made an intentional choice to produce right here in the U.S.? And what if, you know, we were successful, had some success along the lines of Nike or Under Armour, 
you know, think of the jobs we could create. Think of the difference we could make. And ultimately, if we are successful, I mean, think of the legacy we could leave. And in 2017, Brian, my partner and I parted ways. You know, he wanted to focus on those military contracts and I wanted to build a brand. Right. I wanted to build this iconic American brand that's truly American made and have it all made right here in the U.S. That's great. So as far as the manufacturing goes, do you think, uh, obviously labor is a, is a part of it, but do you also think that uh, a lot of the manufacturing left the United States because of um, regulations and red tape? I mean, how much of it is just simply lower cost labor and how much of it is um, something that, that we can control? You know, I mean, it would it, are there laws we could pass or the things that we could do to actually assist American manufacturing coming back? It, it is a very complicated question, Brian, but the number one reason you know, that it went overseas is labor cost. Okay. And if you've never been in an apparel production plant, which most people haven't, but you know, just envision almost an assembly line type production okay. with sewing machine and operator, you know, just running down the line. So it's very labor intensive because you know, think for example, to put you know this buttonhole or this button or this collar. I mean, these are all individual manual steps. So there's some automation that starts to build, but it's incredibly labor intensive. So when it's labor intensive, you know, when the cost is produced is way up here in the U.S. and it's way down overseas, I mean, there's this big gap. Right. So companies, especially when NAFTA happens, said, okay, this gives me an opportunity to lower my cost. But what's happened over the last 10 years is that gap that used to be massive is narrowly growing because think of the wages overseas. Right. I mean, they right. keep going up. So that gap now is much narrowed. And I think what happens when somebody says, okay, Dean, what does it cost to produce this T-shirt here in the U.S. versus what does it cost to produce in China? It is still going to be less expensive to produce in China if you just isolate those two variables. But if you really start to look at that total delivered cost, meaning if it's overseas and you've got such a long supply chain, you're investing a lot more inventory, which is a real cost. Then there's duties and tariffs and import tax and all those things that start to add in. And then, you know, it's not free to ship it from China over to here. There's a big transportation expense. So a lot of times people just look at a very limited analysis versus looking at total delivered cost. So, you know, part of my due diligence, Brian, prior to launching Authentically American is can we be competitive? Right. Because we are a brand that celebrates patriotism. So we wanted to build this amazing story. We also want to make the intentional choice to be American made. But we also had to be competitively priced. Right. And Stu doesn't want to pay double just because it's American made. I haven't met anyone that wants to pay more. So we had to make sure that we can not only have incredible product with an inspiring brand story, but make sure it's competitively priced. What were some of the metrics you used to kind of calculate that? Well, I think the very first step, you know, we're an apparel brand. Right. But my passion, Brian, is not really apparel. My, my passion, ultimately, you know, I want to make a difference. I want to help create okay. jobs. And that's really what motivates me. And I just ended up, God, you know, chose a path that put me in the apparel industry. And, you know, I don't care what business you're in. If there's listeners that say, okay, I'm inspired. I want to start my own business. I think one of the first thing you have to do, no matter what business you're in, is how are you going to set yourself apart? How are you going to be differentiated? How are you going to be unique? Because there's a lot of options out there. I mean, think just apparel. I mean, the three of us could probably rattle off over 100 brands in a quick five minutes. So there's no shortage of choices. Right. And think back to those stats about 97% being produced overseas. 
just inherently the fact that we are American made, I mean, we've created a point of differentiation. And what we've also said that other point of differentiation, since we are in the digital era with social media, it's so easy now to tell a story. So we want to have an inspiring brand story. And one of the ones that Stu, I know you and Brian will appreciate, for example, we very intentionally donate 10% of our profits to veteran first responder charities. So that's another way for us to set yourself apart. So anyone listening, Brian, you know, it really first and foremost is, okay, if you're going to build something on your own, you're going to be an entrepreneur, you've really got to set yourself apart and have a point of differentiation. Okay. So that was one of your specific point on pricing and cost and where do you manufacture? You know, Under Armour is the most recent, you know, iconic brand from an apparel standpoint that launched at the most recent billion dollar brand. So I did some benchmarking and looked at, okay, where is their gross margin, you know, versus where ours is. And there's about a five to seven point gap from where we're at. And I was surprised. I was expecting it was going to be a lot bigger. But again, I think when you start to look at everything goes into that total delivered cost, there's a lot more. So I believe we could be competitive and we could go ahead and, you know, benchmark our pricing. So if Brian, you are a business owner, you are a executive director for a charity and you want to partner with Authentically American and you're already buying a polo, a Nike polo with your company's logo and you are going to go ahead and partner with us, I already know that we're competitive because we want to benchmark versus a known national brand. So Stu, if you're a charity and you're leading the charity and you want to partner with us, you know there's a added benefit because, for example, if you're buying Land's End or you're buying Under Armour, again, I know we're being competitive, but another point of differentiation, Stu, when we partner with a charity, you know, we've made a choice that we're going to provide our goods and services at cost. And that is just another way for us to set ourselves apart. But if you're a charity, that helps you build your brand and helps you raise some dollars in the process. You know, I got a question. When you had the previous business that you bought and you were making uh, clothes and apparel via contract to the military, did you sell that business or did you parlay it into the current structure? Great question, Stu. And really it, it was, you know, a parting of ways. So my partner kept that business and he still focuses on winning more contracts, but you know, it was midway through that journey where I started to build the vision. So we started to build some of the brand, you know, attributes, some of the brand marks. So, you know, as part of this buyout agreement, the, those assets went with me. Okay. Interesting. And then, so I would think getting into something like the apparel market would be such a daunting task. So how I'm real interested in in the beginning, was it friends and family or were you paying heavy advertising nationally? Like how do you grow it once you take some resources and assets from your last business? I get it American made. You've got a point of differentiation, but how do you build from essentially nothing to get your name out there? Still figuring that out, Stu, because <laughs> <laughs> it is not easy. But I will tell you, you know, I really wrestled with that because you know, I had a pretty clear vision on what I wanted Authentically American to be. You know, the ethos of our brand being a brand that celebrates patriotism, being a brand that believes in the American worker, being a brand that honors our American heroes. You know, I had a clear vision for that. But the question was, who's our audience? You know, who's going to be our customer? 
And, you know, part of what I learned at Procter & Gamble and Mars, if you're going to build a brand from scratch like I'm doing, I mean, it's incredibly difficult because you don't have an audience. I mean, nobody knows who you are. And you, are you guys familiar with the brand Swiffer? I am. <laughs> yeah. So Swiffer was launched in 2002, and that's when I was at Procter & Gamble. And still, I still remember to this day, the year one marketing budget, the year one marketing budget alone was $100 million. $100 million. I'm like, I have nowhere near that kind of money. So, again, clear vision on what the brand I want it to be, but no idea how to get the word out. So, as I was doing more due diligence, you know, I found that businesses, for example, whether it's Fortune 500, middle market, small business, all of them buy branded apparel with their company logo. You know, charities, schools, just across the board. And when you roll that up in aggregates, too, you know, there's eight billion, eight billion a year that's spent on branded apparel. And again, there's probably over a hundred choices, whether it's Land's End or Nike or Under Armour. There's a lot of different brands, but there is no brand like authentically, authentically American. There's no American-made choice. So the idea to overcome that barrier was instead of building an audience from scratch, first of all, I'm going to focus on the client side. And we're going to give you as a business owner, if you want a polo with your company logo, you could choose Nike or you could make a choice to partner with Authentically American because we're American made. We've got a story that's similar to yours and now we're competitively priced. That's brilliant. And and, it, and especially if you're starting with young American made companies. So for example, I have a small company called The Perfect Ribbon and we, just like you said, bought eight polos uh, and they weren't cheap either. The eight polos to get you know sewn in my, yeah. my logo and I didn't, you know, I wouldn't have even thought about you. And now I wish I'd have known about this before I bought the shirts, but that would have been a great partnership. So uh, I, I love it. So building the network and resources by partnering with, you know, young American companies, then you you build that pool of capital, that brand following. Uh, I like the strategy. That, who came up with that? Was that you or was that your wife? That was more me. My wife is the prayer warrior. She's also the one relationship. She opened up some doors, but... You know, when I was wrestling from a practical standpoint, hey, vision means nothing unless you can execute it. And yeah. we need to fix that, Brian. So the next order, Stu, that you make, you know, is American made. But what's interesting is part of the longer term plan, I thought in five years, as we get more established with our brand, we're going to go ahead and launch our consumer brand. And now we do have a client, you know, working with, you know, small business owners like you or charities. But we also now have our consumer brand. And that was much faster than I thought, Brian, because what happened is, you know, business owners. So Stu, a business owner like you would say, Dean, how do I get just the flag? And I said, well, what are you talking about? And they said, I love it when your logo is next to mine because it's a subtle reinforcement of our values as a company, but I just want to buy your product. I'm buying other brands. How do I buy just yours? I'm like, well, we don't really have that. Yeah, and yeah. just last year, so we're coming up just over a year, we launched our own consumer brand. So now whether you're an organization or a business or charity, you can partner with us as a client. Or, Stu, you can go to our website and buy your new favorite pair of socks. Or you can buy your new favorite polo or T-shirt or ball cap, anything. Great. How did you decide when you launched the consumer brand, how did you decide what products to um, go forward with? So it really started... Brian, looking back, okay, what were clients buying? And this is another staggering number. 
there's three billion, three billion t-shirts sold a year. So I said, we've got to have an amazing t-shirt. You know, Stu, to your point on polos, you bought polos for your company. You know, those were two of the ones that we made sure that we wanted to be staples. So we've just slowly started adding a you know, relatively new one, our socks. You know, nobody wears ties anymore. Socks are the new ties. So we've got, you know, socks that are Carolina cotton, knit in Carolina that are just incredibly soft, incredibly comfortable. You pull them up at the beginning of the day, they don't fall down or sag. And as a business owner, Stu, we've got a lot of them that will come up with a custom design for their socks that are gifts for their clients. And I can do this, Brian, your question. You know, one of the choices that I made as well is I don't want to be just a t-shirt company. Right. I don't want to be just a hoodie company. So for two years, you know, we were building that contract manufacturing supply chain. So we went from no manufacturing. Now we've got contract manufacturing established in 12 states. So t-shirts, for example, everyone loves our t-shirts. They're made in Texas. Stu, you mentioned polos. We make those out in California. We've got ball caps we make in New Jersey, so all across the U.S. in 12 different states. And it's been phenomenal, but we were really missing that hero product. And have you seen anything or heard anything about our new sweat-activated print innovation? I have. I was actually checking that out just a few Yeah, ago. Brian was telling me about it before you got on, Dean. Well, I'm going to go kindergarten style and do a kindergarten style show and tell. Right. As may have to marry it along, but I'll hold this up. So this is a West Point t-shirt. And I wish we were here in person together because you could feel it. You can touch it, be like, Dean, it's incredibly soft. And then if you feel the print on the front, Stu, we only use a water-based ink. So it's incredibly soft. Brian, it's not like the heavy plastisol on a hot summer day that it will stick to your chest after you wash it a few times, it'll crack. So it's also tagless, so everything is tagless, and of course, it's American-made. So it's an amazing T-shirt by itself, and Stu, you're familiar with this. At West Point, it's all about go Army, yeah. beat Navy. That's right. And I'm not going to go out and sweat, but we'll you know, grab the spray bottle. When you sweat, you know you can see this, you know, beat Navy <laughs> hidden message that appears, and on the back. You know, the hidden message appears even like, and it has been incredible. The response and Stu, I see you laughing, but people are like, Dean, wow, first and foremost, it's an amazing shirt. And now it's got this hidden, you know, secret message and it has just blown up. And I didn't think to go to anyone and like, hey, Brian, do me a favor. The first time you wear it, take a picture, post on social, social media. I mean, there are thousands of pictures now on social media and there are hundreds and hundreds of custom designs because... This has been the first one, Go Army, Beat Navy, but you know, all the other surface academies now have them. There have been other schools and high schools and charities and businesses and sports teams. It's just been fun to see this come to life. And Brian, to this point, I mean, this is now our hero product because think of all the noise out there. I mean, for example, I'm a hockey player, you know, played hockey at West Point, you know, still playing a men's league. I've got a game tonight and I love it. And I became friends with Sean Henry, who's the CEO of the Nashville Predators. Okay. And I thought, well, here's our chance, Brian, to get in with the Nashville Predators, have our first NHL merchandise. And I asked Sean, can you introduce me to whoever leads your apparel? And he handed me off to this third-party contractor that manages our apparel. I'm like, I'm in. Give me a week and we'll be in. And I told him our story, told him about it. And they're like, 
hey, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get to you next year. I'm like, wow. the CEO just introduced me. Like, yeah, we're real busy. There's a lot of other brands. And, you know, if you go to any professional, you know, store, any arena, any stadium, I mean, there's a lot there. I'm like, but we're American made. We're different. So it was about six months. Every month I'd go back and reach out, try an angle and nothing worked. And then Stu, I showed him this. Yeah. <laughs> like, you come down tomorrow. We've got nothing like this. And if it wasn't for COVID, we would have a six foot display in Bridgestone Arena right now that would not only have, you know, this sweat activated t-shirt that, you know, shows go Preds, but we would have had a polo, we would have had a quarter zip, we would have socks, we would have a ball cap. And that's all because this opened the door. So this has been our hero product that really gets us in. So long answer to your question, where'd you focus? But a lot of story behind it. Yeah, it's awesome. No, I, For the listeners who can't see it as clearly as Brian is me on the uh, Zoom yeah. call, he's got a T-shirt that has a, a main phrase. And when it gets wet, so sweat activated, there's a secret message. So on the T-shirt of Go Army, once he sprayed it with a spray bottle, it should beat Navy all over the T-shirt. It's a pretty cool concept and just another point of differentiation for his company. And as you start to add those up, it starts to build momentum and get it, yeah. get the merchandise where he needs it to go. That's great. I love that shirt. And I'm sure you have those in all different uh, services and branches. And I mean, on your website, I mean, it's, I'm sure you can customize that to, to anything. We can, and we've got an entire custom program and I've taken quite a bit of heat from some of my classmates because there also is a go Navy. I won't <laughs> say, but there's a go Navy fill in the blank on the other side. <laughs> and I would say, you know what? Even when the Navy guys make a purchase from us, it helps create American jobs. Dean, I got to tell this story just because we're talking about please go Navy, go army. I was in Afghanistan for a year and I served with the army. I'm a Marine and it's a long story of how that ended up, but I was with the 101st, uh-huh. And they're in the middle of Eastern Afghanistan and the, the army Navy game came on and I don't, I'm a Marine. I really don't care about the army Navy game to be honest with you, but I was like the only Navy representative on that base. So they made me come into the, the jock at, it was, I think 2200 our time over there. Uh-huh. The game was a lot earlier over in the, in the East coast. And Navy just destroyed army that year. I think that was 2011, 2012. Everyone was like mad at me. I was just sitting there. It's like the that was the one Army Navy game I watched. I just wanted to, I wanted to tell that story. They wanted to take all their vengeance out on you. That's right. You know, fortunately, the rivalry is a lot more competitive now, and you know we're having a good run. And it'll be interesting to see how it goes this year. Very cool. And you know, it's I'd like to talk about it, if you don't mind. You said you had contract manufacturing across the United States. Um. Has that been challenging to manage or do you find that it's easier to um, in a sense, kind of outsource some of your manufacturing as opposed to having everything done you know, in-house? Well, Brian, it all depends on how you look at it because, and this is another recommendation for anyone listening to you know, make sure that you know, first and foremost, I tell everybody, find what you love. Find what you're passionate about because then it doesn't feel like work. You're pursuing your life's passion. So that is one. And then the second one, you know, find what you're good at. When you love what you do and you're reasonably good at it, you're going to be, you know, producing some breakthrough results. And the vision came together at my old company. We were a manufacturer. And what I realized is I'm not very good at that. 
and we're a consumer product. So, you know, Ryan's to you guys buy this. You want to say, wow, it's incredible. Forget where it's made, Dean. It's just an amazing product. And as I was doing due diligence and research on what business model, I said, I need to go ahead and do something different because I'm not very good at manufacturing. I'm much, much better at branding and marketing and business development. So as I was doing research, there's models out there for both, but Nike and Under Armour, for example, they have a similar model where it's contract manufacturing. They contract manufacture in China and Bangladesh and Vietnam, all around the world. My model are similar just here in the US. So my strategy, Brian, was to find the best darn t-shirt maker in the country, provide them our specs and then partner with them to provide the best, find the best darn polo maker in the country and partner with them. So for me, it's a lot easier because it's a lot less headaches. At least the headaches that I have, I can solve. And there are some during COVID. When COVID hit, I'm like, are we even going to survive? I mean, here we are spread across the U.S. Plants are shutting down. And, you know, we were fortunately able to make it through that. But I mean, when you don't control your own manufacturing, it can be challenging. But for me, you know, it really enabled the focus to be on, you know, what we do best. And that is building an inspiring brand story. And then we make sure that we've got the right partners to produce amazing product. Uh, you're doing a great job. How has COVID affected you? Has it been, have your sales gone up, down? What have you, what have you been seeing? So I was freaking out a little bit in March because, you know, we brought investors on board and we were forecasted to be up about five to six X this year. And January, February, how long? And then it's leveled off because think on the client side of our business too. A lot of business owners will you know, have sales meetings or have a trade show that they attend. And what are they wearing? You know, company branded stuff. So a lot of that went dark, but fortunately we had a consumer brand because that was growing and we won't be up nearly as much as we thought. We'll probably be up around 3X this year, which is still phenomenal in the middle of COVID. But I will tell you, Brian, with absolute certainty, you know, this global pandemic that we're in is a great thing for us because now more than ever, you know, Americans are actively seeking American-made products. And I don't have one of my business cards to give on you, but hard to see. But our tagline is, where's yours made? Right. So, Stu, if you're a business owner, that's designed to be provocative. And I've literally been sitting there with a business owner and be like, you know what, Stu? great looking t-shirt, where's yours made? And like, well, I have no idea. And they'll look and look at the tag and be like, Bangladesh, which nothing's wrong with Bangladesh, but if you are an American patriot, you want to help create American jobs, you have values similar as ours, I mean, very quickly, you want to partner with us. So that was another way just to go ahead and highlight that point of differentiation we had with our tagline. Dean, can I, I I want to ask a question and I don't, genuinely interested and i understand that the big differentiation in your company is american made but my question is simply what does american made mean and i could go down to a bunch of different rabbit holes i think a t-shirt is pretty easy so you either make it in bangladesh or you make it in the united states but quickly people can start to nibble away at this and i'll give an example of my product i 3d print a product here in america i uh, personally produce the cardboard backing for the product, but the plastic container that it might come in could be bought from another country. Right. So then do you say American made if the plastic that's actually encompassed in it may be made somewhere else? And so you could play this game with the t-shirt. 
the yarn that South Carolina is using to knit the t-shirt is actually imported from India, so on and so forth, right? Yeah. So over to you, what, what is your definition of American made? And I'll say it's really twofold, Stu, because one, there is an official legal definition, you know, for us to have this made in USA tag, you know, there is a very specific legal requirement and the majority of the cost has to be, you know, in the U.S. And to me, though, that's not good enough because, for example, this shirt, I don't know if it's Texas cotton or some of the Southeast cotton, but it is not only cut and sewn here, but all the materials are that way. So I'd mentioned before our socks, they're Carolina cotton knit in Carolina. So about 85 to 95, 90% of what we have, not only is it cut and sewn and all the manufacturing here, but all the raw components are. There are a few of our performance fabrics that just aren't viable here, that just aren't available here. But that's a choice I've had to make today. But that's not okay five years from now, 10 years from now, as we continue to grow, as we continue to expand and have more scale. The goal long term, and I don't know if I can get there five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, but the goal, Brian, would be to say 100%. Every button, every thread, every piece of material, 100% is all sourced here. That's a great goal. What are, um, I mean, I know that maybe I don't know the right question to ask, but in order to make that fabric that, you, that you're talking about, the fabric that you can't, that isn't viable today, how difficult would it be? What are the challenges you're facing to actually make that happen? I mean, I know that's a big question, but I'm just curious to hear the, the process. And there's a lot that goes into, but I'll, I'll touch on one that's probably a little bit closer to home, which will also parallel on the fabric side. So, you know, one of the gaps in the future, and it's not going to be next year or three years from now, but five, 10 years from now, for us to achieve our long-term vision to be a billion dollar brand, you know, we don't have enough capacity. You know, there is not enough here in the U.S., so what we're going to have to do is start having an even closer relationship with our partners. And that would be, you know, our contract manufacturers and even on the fabric side, because right now there's not enough skilled trained labor here in the U.S. I mean, you think about it when only 3% is made here. I mean, there's not a lot of options. And, you know, for perspective, the total U.S. apparel purchases every year is 300 billion. Wow. 300 billion. So. I mean, it's a massive, massive market. So we don't have to be all things to all people. Literally one third of 1% will get us to our goal to be a billion dollar brand. But when you think of those numbers there, 3% times 300 is only 9 billion. Right. If we're only going to be 1 billion of it, I mean, that's still a massive amount. So we're going to have to start planning for the long term. And that's going to involve closer partnerships. And I think the biggest gap right now is skilled labor. That's interesting. And how is, for someone that wants to get into that field, I know that skilled labor, what, what field would you say is severely lacking? Someone that's maybe thinking about going to college or maybe getting out of the military, you know, what, what direction would you point them down to fill that gap? I, I've touched on this a little bit and have not had as much a chance to focus on it. But when I was back on the manufacturing side, we were starting to focus on this and I don't know about your guys' high school experience, but you know there was more of a trade show type education. So, for example, there was home economics. So there was literally, you know, I, I sewed a pillow. There was some of more of a maintenance type class that we 
did. And what I found is, you know, a lot of young high school graduates, you know, still want to pursue a higher education. They want to get a college degree. They want to go down this route. You know, today's age, they may want to go down technology route, but there are still a lot of people that don't want to pursue a college degree. They just want to build a skill, right? They want to build a trade. And I think it can start in high school to go ahead and have those options available to go ahead and start building some of those skills. Well, that's, a, that's a good point. I think you're right. We, we've talked about that before. You know, I think going into college debt for the rest of your life for a, a job that may vanish is, uh-huh. <laughs> is a problem for a lot of people. Um, but that's why I wanted to ask. I wanted to see, you know, what your vision was. And that's, I think we agree. That's awesome to hear. Yeah, but I don't even know. We talk about trade schools a lot. And I agree with the point you made wholeheartedly. And I also agree colleges maybe overblown it, me and Brian have said before it keeps you out of poverty but doesn't necessarily make you wealthy but when we say trade schools like I don't even think there is a trade school out there that could show you how to make a t-shirt manufacturing business right like there's it, not I think there's a lack of trade schools for some of these specific mm-hmm. skills we had a we had a watch manufacturer who came on here and said there's one company out in Arizona that does quartz watch movements but all the rest of them are outsourced and, you know, there's no trade school to show people how to do quartz watch movements. So I guess my thing is, I don't even know if these high school kids have the option to build the trade skills of some of these things. So I don't have an answer, but just kind of making that point. I'm with you, Stu. It's a massive problem to solve. And it's not just apparel specific. I mean, broadly across the board, you know, if you don't want to go to college, you don't want to incur all this debt. I mean, what options are there? And we need to do a better job as a country. You're providing some options. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a challenge. And I think, well, <laughs> I don't know if we're going to fix that today as much as I'd like to. <laughs> I think we could, you know, let's let's get a list of the hundred skills that all over the last 50 years have been outsourced. And then, you know, when you're talking about government funding to college educations, mm-hmm. they should be matching dollar to dollar. If you're given, you know, the University of Alabama and Nick Saban is making 35 million a year as a public servant to coach football, and we don't have any trade school that can teach a kid how to make a T-shirt, I'd say we may be misguided a little bit. Absolutely agree. You know, I wonder though. I wonder if that's going to change. I mean, this is off topic a little bit, but I've said it before. If anyone has a smartphone in the palm of their hand, they literally have access to the, the entire world's information. So I wonder if it's maybe simpler than it than we're making it out to be. I mean, it, it's maybe changing people's mindset to say you have access to that information. You just have to know yeah. where to look for it. Um, you know, I've said it to people before. You can start an Amazon store. You can start a business. You can buy real estate all from the palm of your hand. And I don't know if people are aware of that, you know, and you can literally change the path of your life from your smartphone and Maybe that's it. Maybe it's just something simple as saying, you know what? The tools are out there. We just got to teach people how to look for them and, and teach people that it's out there. You know, you have the opportunity. It's it's right in front of your face. Maybe you just have to search. It's just the right search term, maybe, you know? I, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but... No, I think that's a great point, man. How, how all these trade schools could... Yeah, I, I don't know the answer, but that's a great point. But I, I what I really like too, and... Dean, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what's great about your company too is with making everything in the United States and sourcing as much as you can, 
it seems to me that you have had less issues with your supply chain as far as not being able to get shipments from overseas. So that's another benefit to running a company in the U.S. is that you have tighter control over your your raw materials. So you can still produce product, whereas other companies that rely on, you know, outsourced components, whether it's a bicycle or a watch or whatever it is, like there's some bike stores around my house that they don't have any bikes. So they're open and they're selling everything they have, but they just simply can't get the product. Uh, so has that been true for you where you have greater availability of, of raw materials? That is an absolute true statement, Brian, because sometimes if you're overseas supply chain, if you're sourcing from China, I mean, it can be six months or more. You know, for us, forget number of months, it's number of weeks. Right. And, you know, Stu, if the next order you purchase from us right now, we're in that three to four week range. We want to get it down to one to two weeks. But, you know, very quickly we can go ahead and, you know, produce product. But then the other benefit to a financial standpoint is when you've got a six-month supply chain, I mean, you've got to be having inventory. And those are real-world expensive dollars that you've got to expend. So, you know, there's quicker lead times that you can go ahead and deliver as a business. And then you can also help your financial picture because you don't have to invest in inventory or at least as much. Yeah. That's a great point, too. So, again, for anyone thinking about making stuff in the U.S., that's really something to consider, too, because there are I, like you said before, there are a lot of hidden costs to making things overseas, and it's not simply just the, the cost of the product. Well, I think we're getting close to our, our time here. Uh, Stu, is there anything else you wanted to, to follow up on it uh, before we wrap up here? Yeah, I guess I'm just interested in American-made. Can you just tell me how many years you've been in business? And then, you know, wave top, what's, what do you see the next big two, three moves of the company? So... We officially launched Stu in July of 2017, so we just had our three-year birthday. Happy and birthday. I've got four kids, so we've had three-year-olds before, and you know, three-year-olds now are up and running, and we're starting to move kind of fast. But oftentimes, you know, we'll fall down, we'll skin our knee, and you know, break something, and have a few challenges. But you know, we're starting to move bigger and faster. And probably the number one word I would say for us, Stu, is growth. And we're wrestling with that and some strategic choices, but we want to continue to grow. We want to continue to expand. We want to continue to delight more of our customers. And I'm so thankful for the opportunity, Brian, you reaching out and asking me because if even if it's just the three of us, now you know more about Authentically American than you did before. And then anyone that's listening now, I bet 99% of the people that are tuning in, like Authentically American, never heard of them. So that's our biggest challenge and our biggest opportunity, Stu. And you know, one fun thing that we've done, I'd mentioned benchmarking versus Under Armour. You know, they launched in 1996. Year one revenue for them was 17,000. 24 years later, they've grown each and every year. They're now a $5 billion brand. I mean, just an incredible success story. And we've benchmarked as well. And, you know, our year one versus theirs. And if you look at it out over the first three and a half years, we're 2X, 2X ahead of where they are. Now, we've got a long way to go. I mean, they really started a hockey stick, but I'm fired up. I'm energized. Our team, our investors are really, you know, fired up on where we're going because back to the global pandemic and, you know, those sentiments now in the U.S., again, now more than ever, you know, Americans are actively seeking American made. You know, our tagline, where's yours made, it really starts to resonate. Yeah, I totally agree. That's, that's great. Well, I always like to close with, uh, is there a book you can recommend to our listeners? You know, is there a favorite book of yours that you'd like everyone to read? So uh, 
there's two recent ones, Brian, I read, and one is more of a personal mindset philosophy, and this is a book called The Go-Giver, and I should have thought on Friday to bring it home because I've got a copy on my desk, and The Go-Giver really, you know, the title is as simple as it's described. It's really about how do you, as a strategy, as a philosophy, go ahead and try and serve others, and a friend gave this to me and said, Dean, you're a go-giver. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, read this book and you'll get it. And Brian, just when you reached out, you and I talked and anyone that reaches out, you know, I try to be so deliberate about finding time to help people out because in turn, you know, so many people have helped me. So that helped crystallize in my mind, just, you know, that go-giver mindset. The other one, you know, we've implemented as a business. So Traction is the name of the book. And Gino Whitman is the author. And he developed this thing that he calls the EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. And it really helps high growth startup entrepreneurial companies scale. And, you know, back to being a three-year-old toddler, we've fallen down, we've stumbled. And a lot of it really was my fault because the research Gino did, he looked at so many companies that are high growth entrepreneurial and said, there's really two key roles. There's a visionary and then there's an integrator. And challenges happen when those two try to be the same person. Hmm. And for example, you know, I was obviously the visionary, but Stu, I was also trying to be the integrator. If I was doing your company logo, I would know how many stitches are in your logo. Details that I should probably have no need for knowing. So we've restructured, reorganized. And the other thing is, you know, they prescribed a focus. And I'd be like, okay, team, here's 25 things we got to do. And no surprise. Perhaps we did nothing well. So this book, Traction, and the EOS talks about quarterly rocks. Instead of 25 things, you know, what are those three or four things that you as a company are going to focus on and do them really well? And then not to forget the other 20 things, but you can't do them all. So those are really two, Brian. So one, the go-giver, and two, Traction. That's great. I'm going to add those to our show notes and then put those books up on our website for anyone that's that's interested. But I, Brian, I like let me those. do this as well because I'm I want to give your audience, your listeners, you know, an added, added incentive to come to our West Point, come to our you know, website. So I will send this to you so it's easy, but you go to our website, authenticallyamerican.us. And if you enter the code founder, F-O-U-N-D-E-R, enter founder, that will give you 25% off. Wow. And that gives people an incentive to come and make a purchase. You guys seem to love this sweat activated. So there's a lot of designs there, but whether it's a t-shirt or a polo or a pair of socks, anything that we have, there's 25% off. And I very quickly do this because we've got the authentically American guarantee. If you're not happy, not satisfied for any reason, we'll exchange it or give a full refund. And it is incredibly rare that that happens. And now you have a chance to experience it firsthand. Well, that's, that's incredible. That's very generous of you. So thank you very much. We didn't expect that, but that's, thank you very much. Uh, that's great. I mean, I, and then uh, last thing before we go, where can people find you um, if they want to reach out to you? Um, social media, website. You know, I know we, we mentioned the website, but anywhere else people can find you that you'd like yeah. to. Uh, Number say? one spot is our website, authenticallyamerican.us. You can learn more about being a client. You can learn more, like I said, buying our consumer brand and leveraging that discount code founder. But any one of these social media channels out there, if you go to Facebook, 
search Authentically American, you'll find us. You go to Instagram, you go to LinkedIn, you go to any one of those platforms, search Authentically American, and you'll find us. That's great. We'll, uh, we'll link up with you on our platforms too. So awesome. We can, can find us that, find you that way too. Thanks, uh, Dean. Well, Stu, it was a pleasure. Brian, thank you very much. And like I said, we started this morning with family time in church. And this afternoon, I'm going to get a quick workout in. Rah. That's great. That's everything you need. <laughs> All right. Great. Well, for, uh, for Dean, for Stu, this is Brian signing off. Uh, it's been a real pleasure and we hope to uh, talk to you soon. We wish you the best success uh, in the future and um, we'll get you back on when you, uh, whenever you'd like. So thanks again. Thank you guys. Right. Bye Dean. Nothing old. Nothing old.